Take your Bibles out this morning, if you would please, and turn with me to James chapter 4 as we continue our series through the book of James, looking at the topic this morning, worship or warfare. Now, before we read James chapter 4, I'm going to read another portion of the scripture, and then I will turn and join you in James chapter 4. Paul says in Galatians 5, again, you don't need to turn there, but listen. He says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. James writes, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace. To the humble. Father, once again today, we thank you for your call upon our lives to be salt and light in this society, to live holy lives, to walk as Jesus would walk, to be a witness to those around us. Father, we thank you for a church family where we can come and encourage one another and pray for one another in that mission that we have to the world. Father, I pray that you would build up your body, that you would strengthen us, that we would walk in maturity and in unity and peace. I thank you for the unity and peace in this church. The love that people have one for another, I pray that that would only increase. That that too would be a witness to those around us of the change that Christ has made. Father, this morning I pray that our thoughts and our desires would be laid bare before you. That we would examine ourselves. 
Are we thinking about the things that Christians ought to be thinking about? Are we giving ourselves to things that Christians ought to be yielding themselves to? God, I pray that you would be pleased to take these verses and speak to each heart. I can only speak to ears. I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to hearts. That people would be drawn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we want to lift him up. Because he said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. I pray for that one today who needs Christ. That your Holy Spirit would knock upon the door of their heart. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. In Chuck Colson's book, The Body, there's a chapter entitled, Extending the Right Fist of Fellowship. Now it's built around an event that took place in the Emmanuel Baptist Church of Newton, Massachusetts. When a church conflict broke out into a fist fight at the altar of the sanctuary. I want you to listen to Colson's retelling of the story. It was the right hook that got him. Pastor Waite might have stood in front of the communion table trading punches with head deacon Ray Bryson all morning had not Ray's fist caught him on the chin two minutes and 15 seconds into the fight. Wait went down for the count at the altar where most members of Emmanuel Baptist had first declared their commitment to Christ. Within an instant, the majority of the congregation converged on the communion table, punching and, and shoving. The melee soon spilled over to an open space beside the organ. Mary Dahl, the director of Dorcas Society, threw a hymnal. The missile sailed high and wide and splashed down in the baptistry behind the choir. When Ray's right hook finally took the pastor down, someone grabbed the spring flower arrangement from the altar and threw it high in the air in Ray's direction. Water sprinkled everyone in the first two rows on the right side and a visiting Presbyterian experienced complete immersion when the vase shattered against the wall next to his seat. The fight ended when the police arrived on the scene. Now folks, as as we think about modern day society, one would think this is only par for the course for this current day of warfare. But we need to be reminded of Paul's words to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 12. He says, For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish. That perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. Now folks, as we move into chapter 4, we need to understand where we have been in the book of James. Last week we looked at James chapter 3 when James was contrasting two types of wisdom. There's the wisdom from above 
and there's the wisdom from below. And of course, James was admonishing us to live according to the wisdom from above because if we live according to the wisdom that is from above, our lives will be characterized by peace and love and joy. But if we live according to the wisdom from below, James says, there's only going to be envies and jealousies among us and strife and fighting and everybody's going to be jockeying for for different types of positions even in the body of Christ. As we look at this passage this morning, we see that evidently many in James' congregation were living according to the wisdom that is from below. And he's challenging them to be better than that. To be more mature than that. In this section of James 4, we're reminded of how destructive and how deceptive our passions and our ambitions can be. And we're also reminded what the only solution really is. The first thing I want you to notice with me this morning is that wrong attitudes can be injurious. Wrong attitudes can be injurious. They can be harmful. He says beginning in verse 1, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? Now folks, underscore that last phrase in verse uh, 1. Your passions are at war. Where are they at war? Where does all this begin? Our passions are at war where? Inside of us. Inside of each of us. He goes on in verse 2 to say, You desire and do not have and so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. You have, uh, you, you do not have because you do not ask. Wrong attitudes can be injurious. In his introductory statement here, James asks a question. Look at how they're living. They are fighting and they are quarreling. Just the opposite of how church is supposed to be. If you were to turn over to Hebrews chapter 10, don't do it right now, but later on this afternoon, turn over to Hebrews chapter 10 and pick up reading in verse 24. And we notice that the writer of Hebrews says, We are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as is the habit of some. And as we meet together to worship God... Uh, The writer of Hebrews says we are to provoke one another. We are to stir one another up to love and to good deeds. And all the more as you see the day of Christ's return approaching. And then in John chapter 13, Jesus said, My disciples are to be known by their love for one another. He said, Love one another even as I have loved you. You're to love one another. And all the world will know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. We see in the opening chapters of the book of Acts, we see a marvelous picture of the early church. They met together daily in the temple and in one another's homes. For the breaking of bread and for prayer. And the Bible says in Acts chapter 4 as they were meeting together they would look among themselves and if any among them had any needs they would give up something. They would sacrifice something of their own so they could reach out to a brother or sister in need and meet their need and to help them. 
That's how church is supposed to be. But I want you to notice what James' congregation is involved in. They're fighting and they're quarreling. Now that first word, quarreling, has to do with an atmosphere of tension in the air. They're going to church and something has happened evidently and there's just a tension in the air. Maybe you've been in a scenario like that before where you could kind of cut it with a knife. Maybe you've been in a public gathering like that before and you know what that's like. You know how unpleasant it is to be in a room where the atmosphere, you could cut it with a knife as the old proverbial saying goes. That was the situation. That was the atmosphere. And then the second word that James uses, fighting, has to do with the individual skirmishes that break out where there is an atmosphere of tension. And that's what's going on here. And so James asks a question, but before they can answer the question, he does. He says, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? The source of their problems comes from misplaced affections and wrong attitudes. The source of their problems is their pleasures. Now folks, there's nothing wrong in and of itself with the right kind of pleasure. After all, the Bible states that at God's right hand are pleasures forevermore. But the problem is that here's an area where the fallenness of humanity has so tainted us. We desire things that are actually destructive to us in the long run and we overlook pleasures that God would want us to enjoy. We've got things all upside down today, don't we? We're trying to live right side up in an upside down society. And James reflects that here, how difficult it is to live right side up in an upside down world. He talks about their desires and their pleasures. And the word that he uses here for pleasures is the word from which we get our word hedonism. Hedonism. Hedonism is the playboy philosophy that if it feels good, do it. Hedonism, worshiping pleasure. Their minds were set on the passing pleasures of the world rather than upon Christ. Now folks, wouldn't we oftentimes have to be honest and say the same thing about ourselves? And whenever our minds are set on pleasure or self-seeking, we're in for conflict. We can't be a part of a collective body and care only about what we want. It'll not work in a family. It'll not work in a work environment. It'll not work in a church. It'll not work anywhere else for that matter. When you put selfish people together that only care about their own needs and their own agenda and their own way, James is saying you're headed for trouble. It's like children on a playground all fighting after the same tricycle. James says your passions are at war within you. He's very descriptive here. He goes on to say you desire and do not have and so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain so you fight and you quarrel. Desire, it's a very strong word here. It refers to a lust or a craving. Dr. W.A. Criswell writes, if we have two cars, we want three. 
If we're affluent enough to have a beautiful townhouse, we would like to have one also out in the country. If we have one in the country, we want one in the mountains. If we have one at the mountains, we want one likewise at the lake. James says, and when your desire is not fulfilled, you commit murder. Now, remember he's writing to Christians. We don't expect to see the word murder in this context. And because of that, some scholars have tried to soften this word down to mean something else. But you know what James may be thinking about? James may be thinking about a couple of Old Testament occurrences. Remember when King David lusted after Bathsheba and he took Bathsheba and he committed adultery with her and then to cover up the whole situation when he found out she was pregnant, what did he do? He made arrangements so that Bathsheba's husband would be killed in battle. And then I think also about old wicked Ahab. Ahab wanted Naboth's vineyard. Naboth had a parcel of land next to the king's palace and, and Ahab went to, went to Naboth and said sell me your vineyard I want that vineyard because I want to plant myself a, a vegetable garden next to the king's palace and Naboth said I can't give up that land that's my family's land our inheritance and in Israel they weren't supposed to give up their land and Ahab went home and he was all sorrowful and, and weepy and his wife Jezebel. Jezebel said, Ahab, why are you crying? Why are you so upset? He said, because Naboth's got a piece of property and I want it. And she said, don't you worry about that. I'll get that vineyard for you. And so Jezebel arranged Naboth's murder. She took his life. And Absalom wanted to rule Israel so badly he was even willing to kill his own father David to get the throne. Now folks, if you don't go that far, if you don't actually stoop to, to injuring or killing people, if you see yourself as more refined and sophisticated than that, James says you at least quarrel and fight because of the things that you covet. Now this passage is a reminder to us as believers how wicked the sinful flesh can be. I heard of a church recently, in fact a church not too many miles from us, that's about to destroy itself in conflict and division because one member of the pastor search committee has a family member who they want to be the next pastor of the church, but not everybody's in agreement with that. And so they're turning on one another and devouring one another. Another New York congregation fired their priest. Do you want to know why they fired their priest? Was he dishonest? No. Was he immoral? No. Had he embezzled funds? No. You want to know what he did? When the new priest got to that New York congregation, there was a part of their liturgy that they had put into their order of worship that at a certain point in the worship service, you would stand and shake hands with your neighbor and you would say, God's peace to you. And then you turn to your neighbor and say, and likewise, God's peace to you. 
And some of the members of the congregation who have had lifelong grudges against one another don't want to have to turn to their neighbor and say that. And so they demanded of the new priest that that be taken out of the order of worship. And he refused. So they just got rid of him and got another priest who would skip over that in the order of worship. Reminds me of a dad one time who heard his children out fighting on the swing set in the backyard. And he stepped out on the deck and he, and he hollered at them to quit fighting. Quit fussing and fighting with one another. And his daughter turned to him and said, but dad, we're just playing church. Our desires within us can be so strong that we're destructive, we're harmful, we're injurious to those around us. Commentator William Barclay writes, The steps of the process are simple and terrible. A man allows himself to to desire something. That thing begins to dominate his thoughts. He finds himself involuntarily thinking about it in his waking hours and dreaming of it when he sleeps. It begins to be what is aptly called a ruling passion. He begins to form imaginary schemes to obtain it. And these schemes may well involve ways of eliminating those who stand in his way. For long enough, all this may go on in his mind. Then one day, the imaginings may blaze into action. And he may find himself taking the terrible steps necessary to obtain his desire. Every crime in this world has come from desire, which was first only a feeling in the heart, but which being nourished long enough came in the end to action. And folks, what adds to the tragedy is that our desires, while they cause conflict among us in the end, they don't even satisfy us. Annie Dillard, in her book, The Writing Life, tells the story of of real-life experiments that have been conducted with butterflies. She writes, an intriguing experiment shows that a male butterfly will ignore a living female butterfly of his own species in favor of a painted cardboard one if the cardboard one is big enough and colorful enough. Nearby, the real living female butterfly opens and closes her wings in vain. So much of the pleasure of the, of the world, so much of the pleasure and the desires of life that we seek after is only painted cardboard. And that's why we're admonished to walk according to the Spirit in Galatians 5. Now certainly it's doubtful that a professing believer who habitually walks in the flesh is even a believer to start with. But Christians need to constantly be on guard against the flesh rearing its ugly head. James says at bare minimum, realize that the lust and the pleasure and the envy that is in your heart will cause you destruction. Nothing good comes out of these worldly pleasures that you have, these lusts in your heart. And if you live with various kinds of lust in your heart, your life is going to be nothing more than a checkerboard of one division after another. Now secondly, he points out that wrong praying can be illuminating. 
Wrong praying can be illuminating. At the end of verse 2 he says, You do not have because you do not ask. And then in verse 3 he goes on to say, You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Now folks, these verses on prayer are like a window to a person's soul, aren't they? A window to a person's soul. I want you to think back with me a moment to James chapter 1 verse 17. What did James say in, in James 1 17? He said, Every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation, no shifting shadows. If there's anything good in your life or anything good in my life, it is because of God's saving grace. It comes from the hand of God. But instead of being content with what God allows you to have in life or accomplish in life, the people James describes are resorting to their own schemes. They don't even want to pray. They don't even want to bring God into the picture. Now folks, if you don't even want to pray about something, you don't even want to bring God into a situation, that ought to be illuminating to you in and of itself, shouldn't it? I mean, if there's something going on in your life that you don't even want to get on your knees before God and present it to God because you're afraid of what the answer may be or you just want to handle the situation your own way, I mean, that in itself ought to be a spotlight to your condition. It ought to be illuminating. It ought to serve as a red flag or a warning. Listen to what Kent Hughes says about this. He says, The Bible is repeatedly clear that a driving desire for pleasure is ruinous to the prayer life. The way this works is that first the pleasure-mad Christian who has some spiritual sensitivity realizes that his prayers are inappropriate. Somehow he senses that his desire for a Maserati may not be a spiritual essential. And so he asks for nothing. In fact, he doesn't pray about much at all because few of the things he wants are high on the divine priority list. Now folks, if you find that prayer is not a natural part of your life, then there's some soul searching that you need to do. Jesus told us to ask and keep on asking, seek and keep on seeking, and knock and keep on knocking. We're to be men and women of prayer. We need to be reminded of what Jesus said in John chapter 15. We're nothing without Him. He's the vine. We're the branches. We're to abide in Him. We can't do anything without Him. And so what do we need to do? We need to pray. As a normal, natural part of the Christian's life, we ought to go to God and seek communion with Him. And if we're not willing to do that, then that ought to be illuminating that we're probably following Him at a guilty distance. Remember that parable Jesus told in Luke 18 about a persistent widow? The lesson was that we're to persist in prayer, but Jesus went even further. He said at the end of the parable, he said, But when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? The implication there is staggering. It takes faith to pray. If we don't pray, it may be a sign or a symbol to us that we're not men and women of faith. 
But then James addresses another problem when it comes to praying that likewise ought to be very illuminating. Not only are we sometimes guilty of prayerlessness, but at other times when we do get around to praying, James says we pray wrongly. In verse 3 he says we pray with wrong motives. Again, that ties back in with the beginning of the chapter where he was talking about wrong attitudes. We can lust after things and sometimes our prayers only reflect our earthly lust. Scholar Simon Kistemacher in his commentary on James says, God refuses to listen to men who eagerly pursue selfish pleasures. Greed is idolatry and that is an abomination in the sight of God. God does not listen to prayer that comes from a heart filled with selfish motives. Covetousness and selfishness are insults to God. When John Ward, a member of the British Parliament, died, a prayer was found among his papers. And this was his prayer. O Lord, thou knowest that I have mine estates in the city of London. And likewise that I have lately purchased an estate in the county of Essex. I beseech thee to preserve the two counties of Middlesex and Essex from fire and earthquake. And as I have a mortgage in Hertfordshire, I beg of thee thee likewise to have an eye of compassion on that county as well. As for the rest of the counties, thou mayest deal with them as thou art pleased. (laughs) James says such selfish praying has no place in a Christian's life. If we find ourselves praying for things that we know are simply meant to further our worldly pleasures, then that ought to illuminate us that our hearts are in the wrong place with God. Don't expect God to honor selfish praying. Now folks, again, God's not against pleasure. But we have redefined pleasure today to mean something that's foreign to God. But God's not against pleasure. After all, Psalm 34, 8 says, Delight yourself in the Lord and He'll give you the desires of your heart. God wants us to immerse ourselves in His pleasure by immersing ourselves in Him. John Piper put it this way, making a slight change to the Westminster Confession. He said, the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. And so God's desire to be glorified and your desire to be satisfied are not irreconcilable. And our praying should reflect that. Now there's some principles in prayer that I've given you in your sermon notes that ought to guide us as we pray. Let's look at those a minute. First of all, according to James 1.6, when we pray, we're to ask in faith. Secondly, according to John 16.24, when we pray, we're to pray in Jesus' name. If there's a request that you're making that you cannot or I cannot attach the name of the Lord Jesus to, that in and of itself ought to be a warning too, right? 
Thirdly, when we pray, we're to pray according to the will of God, 1 John 5, 14 says. And John says in 1 John 5, when we're praying according to the will of God, we have every confidence that God's going to hear that prayer and He's going to answer it. 1 Peter 3, 7 says when we pray, we're to be in a right relationship with others. You want to know what the context of that verse is in 1 Peter 3? It's a husband's relationship with his wife. You know what Peter says there? Husbands, if you're at odds with your wife and you're not giving her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, even your prayers to God are going to be hindered. You can't be right with God if you're not right with others. And then lastly, according to Psalm 66, 18, when we pray, we're not to have any unconfessed or unrepented of sin in our lives. David said, if I regard iniquity in my heart, God will not hear me. Well, moving on. Thirdly, wrong affections can be isolating. Wrong affections can put us at a distance from God. Look at verses 4 to 6. He says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says, He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He's made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace, therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. James points out here that friendship with the world puts us at a great distance from God. Now as David Jeremiah points out, when James refers to them as adulterers and adulteresses, This wouldn't have been as shocking to them back then as it may be to us today because you see in their Jewish background there were many passages in the Old Testament that referred to the marriage that God had between himself and his people. Isaiah 54, 5 says, For for your maker is your husband and the Lord of hosts is his name. Hosea 9.1 says, Do not rejoice, O Israel, with joy like other peoples, for you have played the harlot against your God. The New Testament picks up this marriage analogy in the Old Testament, and so we're referred to as what? We're called the bride of Christ. Now what James wants us to see here is that friendship with the world isolates us from friendship with God. Now obviously James is not referring to the world here in the same sense that Jesus meant in John 3.16 when he said, For God so loved the world. What, What was Jesus talking about? All the people of the world, right? And we know we are to love the people of the world and try to win them to Christ. When James uses the word world here, James means what John means in 1 John. James and John refer to the world that we're not to love in in the sense of of this evil world system. This this world system that is cold to God or, or hostile to God. And so the Bible says we're not to love the world or the things of the world because the things of this world are opposed to God. And by the way, John says in 1 John 2, the things of this world are 
also passing away. They won't last. And so we're not to love the world. One writer says the world is, is, is human nature sacrificing the spiritual to the material. Wouldn't you say that's the description of the 21st century? Sacrificing the spiritual in favor of the material. He goes on to say the future, sacrificing the future to the present, the unseen and the eternal to that which touches the senses and perishes with time. The world is a mighty flood of thoughts, feelings, principles of action, conventional prejudices, dislikes, attachments which have been gathering around human life for ages, impregnating it, impelling it, molding it, and degrading it. This is the world, James says, that we're not to become buddies with. If we become buddies, if we become best friends with the evil world system that is opposed to God, then what do we find? James says we find that we ourselves have likewise become opposed to God. Jesus said, no man can serve two masters. Now, he might have been talking about God and money, but he could have just as easily been speaking about God and the world. If you team up with the world, you're teaming up with a system that is at best cold to God and at worst hostile to God. Now, folks, this is a radical and a painful thought. To think of those who were enemies to God, all of us. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But God loved us too much to leave us in this estranged predicament. And so He sent His Son to go to Calvary's cross to die for us, that through faith in Jesus Christ, we can become the adopted sons and daughters of God, be reconciled to Him, have peace with Him, be members of His family, and have our name written in the Lamb's book of life. That's what God's accomplished. But James is saying the painfulness to think of people who have gone through that experience can all of a sudden make themselves enemies of God. It's almost unthinkable, isn't it? It's almost unthinkable. But we know it happens all the time because even believers can sometimes feed the flesh instead of the spirit and become friends with the world and buddy up to the world even though they know that the world is against Jesus Christ. What a shame that that happens. Especially given what he says in verse 5. In verse 5 he talks about God's spirit jealously desires after our spirit. Now you'll search in vain to find the exact verse that James is quoting from in the Old Testament. But you will not search in vain for the concept. The concept is all through the Bible. That God is jealous for His people. 
God is jealous for you. God is jealous for me because He loves you and He loves me and He knows what's best for you and what's best for me. And God knows that many of the things that I give my affections to are not worthy of who I am as His son. And God knows much of what I give myself to is in the end not going to satisfy me whatsoever. But he says what we must do is humble ourselves before him. Even if we've strayed and given our affections to the world, James is saying if we'll repent and return to God, what will we find? We'll find grace. Amen? If we persist in the way we are in chasing after the world, we'll find isolation. And we'll find that even God Himself sets His face against us. But if we'll turn and come back to Him, we'll find in Jesus a friend for sinners. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Enemy or friend? What's God to you? Enemy or friend? Friend, I hope. Would you bow in prayer with me, please? As you're bowed in prayer, I want you to humble yourself before God and come to Jesus Christ today. If you've chosen the world over Him time and time again, be honest with yourself. Look at where it's gotten you. Like the prodigal son, come to your senses and come home. Whether it's for the first time in salvation that you come to Him or whether you're coming as a believer who's been in the far country wandering, you'll find Him waiting. He's been waiting and watching just for you. Perhaps today you need to come to Him in a fresh way concerning prayer. Maybe your prayer life's in shambles. When you do pray, you pray selfishly. But in all honesty, you don't even pray much anymore. Come to Him in a decision for prayer. Surrender your life to being a prayer warrior. Pray about things that you know would glorify God and further His kingdom. Pray about lost souls. Pray about those who are wandering. Pray about the needs of those who are suffering. Give yourself to prayer. Pray this morning about your attitudes and your desires. Ask God to give you desires and attitudes that He would want you to have. Be honest enough to recognize that your own desires have probably gotten you into a lot of trouble in the past. Father, turn our eyes toward You. Set our affections and our desires upon You upon your word, upon your work, and upon those who need you. 
Help us to get our eyes off of ourselves. To walk in the Spirit. To reflect Christ. That we would have worship versus warfare in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray.